Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, a product of Talent 409. I am your host, Colin Cernelia. Thank you for joining us today. Go to talent409.com to learn more about how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. This podcast is available on Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Radio.com, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. Please consider taking a minute and on Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and review. Doing this helps other dynamic leaders find us, and it helps us find other dynamic leaders. And don't forget, you can now ask Alexa to play your favorite Apple Podcasts on any Amazon-enabled device. Just say, Alexa, play the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Getting Dynamic Leaders with Colin Cherniglia from Apple Podcasts. Okay, on to my featured guest today. I am joined by Rachel Belkovic. Rachel has just started her first season as the minor league hitting coach for the New York Yankees. Prior to that, she spent the past six years in baseball with various organizations, and she played college softball as a catcher at the University of New Mexico. If you came to this podcast to listen to Badass Women, then these past two weeks have probably been quite a treat for you. Last week with Caroline Means, and this week with Rachel. She is impressive in her own right, and this is really another amazing conversation. So let's discover our talent altitude. Here is my talk with Rachel Belkovic. the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest on the show is Rachel Belkovec. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's exciting. We have so much that I want to talk about today. And your background is very unique, very diverse. And we're going to get through as much as that as we can. But first, I want to give you an opportunity like I do with all of my guests to tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself. So please tell us, who are you? Oh, God, who am I? Um, a really interesting question. I don't always have the right answer for it, I guess. I think (laughs) a lot of people would probably fill this answer with a lot of professional accolades and, you know, what I've done. And I think who I am is more of a general question. It's, you know, I'm a, I'm a curious person. I'm a seeker. I'm a, I'm a teacher is a, is a word that I resonate with a lot. And I, I love to teach. I love to coach. Um, I love to empower people. So, you know, the, those personality traits or those values manifest in what I do every day and my actual, like, what do I do day to day, minute to minute? And that's my, my job. So who am I from a more, like, granular, I guess, the answer that's more typical? I work in professional baseball, and I've been a coach in professional baseball for six seasons, flipping by seven, crossing over to being a hitting coach. And I'll be with the New York Yankees as a minor league hitting coach. Previously, I was a, a strength and conditioning coach for six seasons in professional baseball. I've been a strength coach for about 10 years in various places, LSU. I entered Arizona State early on. Uh, I was a Division One athlete and just kind of a sportswoman my entire life. So I guess that was probably like a, a little bit of a general answer, and I'm happy to answer like more questions 
you know, specifically to, to dive into some of those things. Yeah, yeah, we definitely want to get a little bit more specific. And, and I'm glad that you, you gave both answers, because I think that already unlocks a, a little bit about your personality and, and will help explain some of the, the paths that you've taken and some of the risks that you've taken to get to where you are today. But I want to start with the fact that you mentioned that you're a curious person and that word teacher. That word resonates with me. I do the, um, have you ever heard of the the word of the year? It's it's kind of like goal setting, but you just pick one particular word. And I picked teacher as my word of the year for oh, 2019. <laughs> yeah, so that was it was it was for last year, and and I've been reflecting on it, especially with the the start of the new year here in 2020. And I have my reasons for why that word really resonates with me. But I'd love to hear about the curious aspect of your personality and why teacher means so much to you. I think. You know, why it means so much to me is because when I think about, when I think about, like, how I've arrived at this spot, right? How am I in a car driving to spring training to be a hitting coach for the, for the New York Yankees? Like, how did it happen? Right. And you just have to think back about, like, all the teachers that have taught me, starting with my parents. You know, starting, like, literally in the home. How did I develop early values, early thought processes, uh, my beliefs, whether they were you know, dreaming and my beliefs in myself or limiting beliefs, you know, things, things that I picked up in the home that were maybe not going to be in the future, which which happens in every household, no matter where you are. And I just think about, yeah, my early teachers and, and why, and like how much I was given. Like, then you think about coaches when I was young. I think about uh, when I was in middle school, we had this teacher, sorry, excuse me, a coach. She was a soccer coach named Mrs. Cantor. And I just think back, I wonder, like, she was such a strong presence and like this really she was like intense. She was super fit. She was coaching soccer. She was. She had a pool at her home where she would do swimming lessons. Like she just was this like go getter woman. And I think back, I'm like, wow. I wonder how much of an impact that had on me. And then I had my high school coaches in softball who were also teachers. Who I tell them, oh, I want to go to University of Texas and play softball, and they didn't tell me no. You know, things that just I've had so many incredible teachers that have taught me. Obviously, about like sports, literally. But then also just the lessons I learned from them as far as like creating this this curiosity, creating this seeking, you know, that, that has allowed me to do what I've been able to do. And so now it's like it's my turn to pass it on. And I speak back again to those high school coaches that uh, Mr. King, when I was in, in high school, he was like, you know, someday you're going to have to be a coach. And I was like, no, I'm never going to do that. Never. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and I like think back on those words. And I'm like, man, you know, like you, he's like, you have to coach. Like this is this is going to be your path. And I just thought he was crazy. And then like here I am, you know, driving to spring train to be a hitting coach. So I, he was right, obviously. But it's like my opportunity to give back because I feel like I've had so many wonderful teachers and coaches. And everyone says, says that, but I like I had a really special blend of people, really, in my young years that just males that were great. To me, you know, that were supportive and just really healthily hard on me and, and those things and like my mom and dad and I just had such a great like perfect storm of people who were incredibly, incredibly had like these crazy high standards, but also incredibly supportive at the same time. And I think that's really rare. Like why does it mean so much is just to give back, you know, to give back the lessons that I've given that I've gotten and received from these people. And then to be able to be that type of coach or teacher for, for someone else. Sure. Now, one of the most interesting aspects 
of life is so when you're a kid you have most kids have this amazing imagination and they're always and that's and that's their form of being curious right like they're learning they're developing they're yeah. they're growing and i think in life and i don't know what the primary motive behind this is but we all get to a point where we get to those limiting beliefs we get to a fixed mindset and oh yeah a lot of adults for one reason or the other stay in that mindset for the majority of their lives. And it's not everybody that can flip that switch back and be that imaginative kid that you were, if, if you will, and, and be curious and want to learn and grow and not think of yourself as just one thing or the other. Was there like a particular moment in your life where you realized that switch flipped on, like you became really serious about being curious and wanting to learn and not limiting your beliefs? Oh God! Again, it's like I would say it's the perfect storm, right? I I always wanted to move away from home. I always was like a little curious. I wanted to play softball away from home. I was really adamant about leaving Omaha and getting out and just like I loved seeing other cultures. Our father was uh, worked for American Airlines for thirty five years, and so and we were like dead middle of the road, middle class, like as middle class as you get. We had everything we needed. We had food all the time, probably, you know, more more than we needed sometimes. And, like, but we just didn't do extra. We didn't go out to eat a lot. We didn't have name brands. Like, I, there just was nothing extra. We had everything we needed, nothing more. But because my father worked for the airlines, we could travel because we could travel for free. So we were this middle-class family that did a lot more traveling than we ever would have if we didn't have those three flights. So from a young age, I was exposed to cultures. And I'm talking about, from, when you're from Omaha, like, everything is culture, right? Like, going to Texas was culture. Like, going to Colorado, that was culture. Like, whoa, kids, like, seeing mountains is just mind-blowing. And so I got exposed to other cultures. We went to Puerto Rico. We went to the Bahamas. We did some things that I probably wouldn't have been privy to if, if my dad didn't have that job. And I think growing up, I just got the sense of, like, all right, traveling is normal. This is what you do. You, you, get, out of, you get outside of your city. You get outside of your you know, proverbial box, and you go see something different, and you obviously enjoy the sun if you're from Omaha, but you also get to see other cultures. So I always had that in me. I think I'm going to credit my dad for that, but, like, then I wanted, immediately I wanted to leave Omaha, and I ended up going to Creighton my freshman year of college, uh, which is in Omaha. It's a private school in Omaha. I got a good scholarship. It was the only school that I, only Division One that I got a great scholarship to go to. I probably could have walked on at many other big schools, but, like, no scholarships. So I, I went there for one year, and then when I, I transferred after my freshman year, when I transferred, I was like, no chance. If I don't go now, I'm here. I'm going to be here. Because you, you graduate, you get a job in Omaha, whatever. So New Mexico recruited me, and I didn't go on a visit. I literally did not go on a visit. I just I Googled Albuquerque because I didn't know where it was. It was 1,000 miles away. And I looked at the weather, and I looked at the ethnicity of the school because I was concerned with getting exposure to other cultures. I was like, I need to see something different. So I looked up the school, and it was like 50% Mexican, 25% Native American, and like 25% white and black. And I was like, I'm going. So it's a 1,000 miles away. There's mountains, different climate, different people. I'm going. And so I, I've always had that in me a little bit. And then I think once I did those first couple of moves, then you start to really go, oh, my God, this is so healthy to like be exposed to all of these different things. And it just shifts your mindset. And then also, 
you leave Omaha, and, and at first you're like, you keep in touch with everyone, right? Like, you leave, you leave us with any situation. It doesn't have to be a city. It could be a, a friend group of any kind. You leave that friend group, and then you keep in touch with everyone, and people start to fade away. And then with those things, your thoughts, your, your words, your belief systems that you might have held because of those people start to fade away. So then, then after a couple of times doing that, because I moved to New Mexico, finished my softball career there, and then I moved to do an internship. Then I moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which, oh my God, talk about culture shock there. <laughs> like, I go from Omaha, Albuquerque was like a, a nice little, you know, waiting pool. And then, like, going to Baton Rouge and living in the deep south for two years is like just jumping into the deep end culturally for me. So, which I, I loved it, but it just was, you know, it's different. So, after a couple of moves, you start to, like, you only keep the things that are important to you. And, like, metaphorically, literally, I only, you know, I'm moving in my car. So, I would, you know, you know how great it feels to, like, clean out your closet, right? <laughs> so, I would also clean out my metaphorical closet of, like, people and thoughts and and habits, maybe, that I had formed in a certain city in a circle, circle of friends or whatever. Then you shed those. And then you get a chance to restart and renew yourself and, and say, wait a second, I was doing that because I was hanging out with those people. Is that really what I want to do now? And if it's not, well, wow, I have this new fresh start again that I can change my habits. I can create new ones. And so like kind of intentionally, kind of unintentionally throughout my career, my life, I've moved so many times for my jobs and whatever. And I've gone to so many different places that it not only you have to be curious, like it forces you to, to be, you know, do new things and see new things and just be lost and without friends and all these things. But then also you just get a taste for it, right? You're like, every time I move now, it just feels so great because I clean out my closet. And then I clean out my, my metaphorical closet of people and thoughts and words and habits that I developed in a certain city in a certain situation. And then I can keep what I want. And I can keep those relationships that I want too. And I can stay in touch with them through the phone. But the ones that I don't, I can just let them fall away. And it's not negative or positive. That that person or situation probably served a purpose for me. But now I might, might say, ah, okay, in that season of my life, that was very purposeful, but now it's not. So I just let it fall away, you know? So, okay, that was like a really long answer to your question. <laughs> you asked me. Was there a certain turning point? The answer is no. There wasn't a certain turning point. This is... This is honestly, like, if I had to give myself a talent, it's not, like, coaching or baseball or whatever. It's actually, like, this thing right here of, like, moving, shedding your skin, evolving, learning, growing. Because because of my career and also because I've sought it out, I feel like I've developed a talent for doing that, that over a very long period of time. Like, there wasn't a wake-up moment for me where I thought, oh, I'm dead, I need to wake up. Like, that didn't happen. It just was a product of my actions over a long period of time. I think that's so cool. And what an interesting perspective. I mean, I've, I've had 80 plus conversations recorded here on my podcast. And I don't know that anybody's ever talked about leading your life in that way, the way that you just described it. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's, I think it's awesome. And, and I'm sure that it's, it's led to a lot of the, success and the happiness that you've had because I know for myself I was one of those people that I think for a moment was in that fixed mindset and did have limited beliefs and since I've broken open from that 
it's been a whole new world for me and, and I and I'm trying to to get more diverse with my thoughts and my actions and to learn from other people and other cultures and I know that I can do a lot better, especially just hearing what you, how, how you go about everything. But I think that's, that's great perspective and great knowledge for people to take away. I also think that it's, well, go ahead. Oh, well, I just was going to say like, you know, not everyone, first of all, not everyone has to live like I do because there's like really huge challenges that comes with, comes with that too. Sure. But I think that, I think that what's important to take away from it is like, don't allow yourself not clean out your closet. Just because you're staying in a house and you whatever doesn't mean you have to accumulate a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Just because you're in one place, so like you have to you have to have like check-ins with yourself and clean out your closet. And I'm not I'm not talking about your clothes, right? Like clean it out. Get rid, you know, break up with your boyfriend. Stop hanging out with a friend. If you have that little feeling inside of you where you're like, I don't think maybe this was super fun. Like, there's like a great example is like college, right? You go to college. And so fun to, to like get drunk and hang out and do whatever and then you like you move on in your life and you're like wait you know that was fun and it was it's not that it was bad at the time it was serving you and whatever purpose it was serving you it was serving you and you had fun and those people taught you something and most people say oh well I have to stay friends with this friend forever and I feel bad if I don't invite them over anymore and I feel bad about this and you don't have to feel bad. You just look at a, a friendship or a relationship and you say, wow, thank you so much for what you gave me in that time of my life. It was really important. Now it's not so important. So I'm not going to hang out with you anymore, but that doesn't devalue the time that I spent with you before. In my life, very naturally, that happens all the time because I move around so much. But in most people's life that don't move around, there's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong with not moving around is maybe not not cleaning out your closet, not not metaphorically moving, you know? Yeah. Even if you're stationary in one city or one spot doesn't mean that you that you can't shed your skin in that spot. That makes so much sense and, and I really do hope that somebody listening to this episode at the very least can take away some of those words of wisdom and, and apply them to their lives if they're because there's a lot of people I think that do struggle you're, you're talking about change essentially and, and change is yeah. really difficult for a lot of people they they don't adapt well to it and, and that's the primary driver behind why they don't do it so their closet gets filled up the metaphoric closet gets filled up and you just it's it is very hard to grow if you're doing the same things that you've done year after year day after day for an unlimited amount of time but what I've... Let me give you this gem. I'm going to drop this gem on you right now. This is for the listeners. Great. Okay? I'm moving from Seattle to Tampa. What does that mean when I'm cleaning out my closet? It means that I have to get rid of a lot of winter clothes. And it means <laughs> I might have to get some other summer clothes. That's so natural, right? But And that's a, it's a different job. It's a different city. It's a different season of my life. But so many people in every other area of their life, they keep the winter clothes even though they're living in Tampa. Because they're like, oh, I might. I need this winter jacket. I can't let it go. I remember when I wore it that one time at that one wedding. It was so fun. <laughs> and they just don't let go of the winter jacket. So they move and they just keep everything. And it's like, very literally, I don't need these things anymore. But that's so easy to think about in the terms of clothes and cleaning out your closet. But very hard for most people to think about when you're talking about relationships. Yes. Anyway. 
Yes. No, I love it. It's that's awesome. And it's it's just ma- really making me reflect right now. Just just listening to, <laughs> to all this. So. Get rid of the winter jacket. Get rid of it. You don't need it. Yes. I will tell you when I moved from Syracuse to Charlotte, where I'm living now, I left my winter boots at my parents' house. So I didn't totally get rid of them, but I didn't bring them with me because I said, if I'm going to be back in Syracuse in the winter, like around the holidays and it snows, I want a pair of boots but i did leave my winter boots behind (laughs) okay good yes (laughs) what's been so interesting about this conversation as well so far is the fact that we have talked so much about life and in these different cultures and the ways that you have gone about your journey and we really just glossed over the fact that you played college softball I think that that part of your life story is an amazing accomplishment to be able to get to that level of competition and play at an elite level. I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about the whole softball journey, how it started, how you ended up at Creighton before you transferred to New Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about your softball journey? Mm -hmm. Yep. I had a, I think, pretty common, but also not talked about athletic career, I guess. All right, so I went, I was pretty good in high school, which, again, everyone says, like, oh, I was pretty good in high school. Like, that's like the <laughs> funny joke, right? Um, but I was really good. Like, I was extremely, like, I was physically grown. You know, I was a grown woman in high school playing. I probably weighed, like, 160-ish pounds and, like, was really strong. And I was very good on the softball field. But nobody recruits in Omaha, Nebraska, let me just tell you that. Or they may they, they do now, but definitely not back then. I was the first girl out of my high school to get a Division One scholarship in softball. And, like, it's just not very good competition. But I played on a club team that, like, we travel all over the country to play better competition. But having said that, I like, I didn't know how it worked. My parents didn't know how it worked. Looking back and understanding what I understand now about, like, college athletics, I should have probably, like, gone and walked on somewhere and I probably would have made a bigger team if I wanted to as a walk-on but nobody was going to give me a scholarship and and like being from the midwest middle class you know very much like blue collar I was going to go where I got the biggest scholarship which was great university which for me outside looking in everyone's like yeah great great scholarship to play in college uh, that's outside looking in but for me it was torturous because I wanted to leave home I wanted to get out of my like comfort zone I wanted to get away from you know, what my high school was like, and I went from going to a private Catholic high school to a private Catholic university, saw people I knew in high school, right down the road from my parents, I got a great scholarship, and so that's where I went. Well, as the universe would have it, or God or Buddha would have it, I had a horrible year there, and had a pretty, like, I would say, not ideal coaching situation where I had, I've had a lot of coaches that were really tough on me, and this was a little bit different, I developed an extreme case of game anxiety where I couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher, which is really common in baseball. It's called the yip. But I, and it's in other sports as well, but I think in baseball it's pretty highly prevalent. Where I, I went from like my, the tool that I was recruited for was my arm and how precise it could be and how hard I could throw it to like not being able to throw the ball back to the pitcher, period. That was really tough. It was a huge identity loss. It was a huge, like, I mean, I basically slipped into a depression that I probably didn't come out of until I was done playing. But I knew it was bad when I, at the end of the year, I said, you know, I went to my parents and I said, you know, I think I want to give it another shot. Just I need to just keep working hard and keep listening to the coach. And they were like, you're not going back there. They're like, you're not going back to that school. 
so anyway, I didn't go back. They made me like transfer, and I transferred, got got out of that situation. I got a little bit better, but ultimately, I transferred to New Mexico. And like you went from and at Creighton, you're playing like UMKC. You know, it's a, it's a mid major, right? And New Mexico is a mid major as well. But New Mexico is in a hotbed for softball, baseball. So our fall games are against like Arizona. Like you're playing top ten teams in the fall game, and you play like my first game was against UCLA in the springtime. And I think like I had gotten better and more confident in myself and gotten out of that little like game anxiety situation that I was in. But still, no matter what, when you're playing a top ten team, you need to be be able to be fully trusted that when there's a runner on third, you can't overthrow the pitcher. And I never, my coach could never really trust me in those pressure situations against big teams. So I barely played. So that was really tough. Um, but what I'll say is like, it led me to my career in, in the fact that I could not contribute on the field, but I was still just, just like hardworking, positive, hustle, blah, blah, blah. I had all of these intangibles locked down and I would just get to a game and could physically put it together. So I didn't play really at all in my college career, but somehow it still was extremely positive because I took to the weight room. I invested in that because no matter what, one plus one equals two when you're in the weight room. If you lift heavy weight, you're probably going to get stronger. One plus one was equaling negative six. I was working really hard. I was doing everything right. I was doing everything they asked me. As I would get on the field, it just was this crazy, like, it's hard to describe if you've never seen or experienced it, but I just like I couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher. It's a thing that I've done for probably tens of thousands of times at that point in my life. So it was incredibly difficult. However, my strength and conditioning career was born out of that experience. And also, I think I'm definitely a better coach and teacher because I struggled. And I struggled hard. Not like, oh, I was in a slump one time. But like, oh, the yips were in my career. And I had an identity loss my sophomore year of high school as a depression or of college as a depression. Like, that's a really tough experience. And I've just learned so much from it. I think it's truly really made me a better coach. One, I give long answers, Colin. <laughs> no, they're, they're not long. They're detailed, and, and I love that. And that's why people come to this podcast. They want to hear you talk. They don't want to hear me. <laughs> hey, everyone. Christine here to talk about a sponsor of this show, my own business, Sweat With Stods. Head over to sweatwithstods.com to get the workout that suits your needs, whether you work out at home, in the gym, or you're brand new to fitness. There's something for everyone. Podcast listeners also get a special discount with code DYNAMIC at checkout, so be sure to head on over there after this. Thanks, and back to the show. I want to highlight an important aspect that you just talked about in that answer and the fact that you went through some adversity. And the yips I'm familiar with at Chuck Knobloch was – my favorite player when he was on the Yankees. So you go through this moment of adversity and not only do you come out of it, the other side, a more well-rounded, better person probably for it. Cause now you can, as a coach, like you said, you can relate to the failure and to the adversity, which is a big part of the job. But I think what you also said was that you decided that even though your role was going to be different and you weren't necessarily going to be the star that you still wanted to contribute. And I think that is the most important aspect that even though your role changed and we can't all be stars, let's, let's face it. We all want to be, but we can't all be the star. You took that challenge and you were like, okay, I'm going to contribute in this way. And in that way, you didn't dwell on your failure or your, on, and your adversity and I think that's a really special attribute that I want to make sure that I highlight from this conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, lots of, like, in the moment, that was tough. It was embarrassing. It was, like, horrible. Like, or I, I thought it was horrible, you know, because I don't think I was, like, the normal softball player. Just in general, I think it's different now, but definitely 10 years ago when I was playing, like, nobody was like, oh, I want to play professional softball. Nobody. I knew not one person that said that, but I said that. You know, and I, I like, publicly said, I want to play professional softball. I want to be in the Olympics. Like, that wasn't a dream of mine. That was a dream of mine, and it was embarrassing overall to, like, go and just completely fail. And in my mind, it was public failure, but, like, you know, realistically, it was very small. But it was just setting me up for other hard shit that I was going to encounter, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't... And at the time, it was really hard, but now that I, that was my first time really, like, going through something difficult. But now when I go through something difficult, I'm like, oh, I've been here before. I know this emotion. I know the emotion of embarrassment. I know the emotion of public embarrassment, which is important for me now. <laughs> like, public things being said about me and what people think. And, I, like, I've been through that. And so if you can just, if you can just look at those things and say, wow, that was such a gift. I, when I hear someone's had this like incredibly successful career and they have very few injuries and they were always really good when they grew up and they never had to like to stress about something, I'm like, wow, that sucks because I feel like I'm really I'm so much stronger mentally because of those things. Starting with that experience as a college athlete, you know, than I would would have been if I would have been super successful and oh, I was just recruited by everybody and it was super easy and I mean that that seems boring almost at this point. Sure and just the ability to transfer that moment and that experience in your life to everything after sport when you're done and you're retired and you have to get into the real right. world. That's, that's something that I, I don't know that all student athletes or athletes in general, I don't know that they all can, can see it when it's happening. Cause like you said, in the moment it can be embarrassing. It's tough, but I mean, now, now you're kind of bulletproof, right? Like you, you've went through probably the worst adversity that you could think of when, when you're just like so personally embarrassed about something that you've done at an elite level. So like, really what's, what else is, is going to bother you to the, to that extent, you know? Yeah, really. Seriously. <laughs> All right. And you have transitioned us really nicely. You talked about your strength and conditioning career and I think I read that CrossFit really is, is your jam. Is, is that accurate? <laughs> um, I don't like do traditional CrossFit, I guess, but I do Olympic lifting, I do conditioning, and I do some gymnastics work. So if you put those all together, that equals CrossFit. So I think there's like some really, really fascinating things about CrossFit where it's allowing, it allows me, I'll just speak personally, it allows me to compete with myself and like go hard and train and feel like an athlete. Like I truly, truly view myself as an athlete still because my days revolve around training a lot and like what I eat and what I do, you know, like I, that, that is a huge thing on my mind and it allows me to compete with myself and with others sometimes. Like you check the time of something that you did 2k row or whatever it is. You check the time and you're like, damn, like, um, uh, Samantha Briggs did that in uh, five minutes. Cool. <laughs> you know, or whatever it is, like, it allows you to just have that little bit of, like, competition where I, w I was really missing that. After college, I I got into coaching, and it was good, but then I, I didn't even realize that I was missing it until I started playing beach volleyball in South Florida, and I just started, like, getting back into that mindset of just, like, failing, getting coached, and teaching, and all these things, and, like, the feeling of getting coached is really different than coaching, of course. So, getting coached on those things, and, like, just sucking at something and having to learn something physically, put your hands, get your hands dirty, 
that was really fun. And then I started moving around more away from South Florida, and I found CrossFit as a way that I can you can do CrossFit all over the world. I can drop in any gym, so I can do those things anywhere in the world and still get that like my competition fix or my my athlete fix at any time. So that's kind of the CrossFit thing. Was the reasoning behind getting the biomechanics degree was that? spurred in part by your love for strength and conditioning or how did that all come about yeah like short story is that I knew I was switching careers and I would I try to look 10 years ahead in my life and say what am I going to wish that I did now and this that was it you know because I see I see the way that the sport is going I see the way sports are going in general where it's sports science and it's the more technical side of things is really prevalent and my degree in exercise science from New Mexico is irrelevant now and it was like never relevant, really. It was like never the thing that really helped me. So I, I always say like, or I, I've started to say I should say is like, okay, this was actually my first degree that I actually did because my first degree was uh, exercise science that like was almost pointless, almost <laughs> pointless. And then my second degree was sports management from LSU that was almost pointless. And like now I'm ten years into my career, I have a better idea of where I'm going. I have a better idea of what the the career field looks like. Now I can choose, okay, this is what I need to do. And I actually invested in time being a true, true student. And, like, I read everything. I went to every single class. I was just, like, so invested. So I was looking 10 years ahead to say, what what am I going to need in 10 years? This, this is what I thought it was. I knew I was switching careers. I knew I was getting out of strength and conditioning and into a more field-focused environment and then maybe potentially down the, down the line in scouting and front office. So I knew I wanted a strong background in, statistics and kind of like that mindset so that's why I did that I went to Amsterdam because one of the leading researchers in the world in eye tracking is in Amsterdam at a school the school that I went to is called Bry Universitas and he is one of the leading researchers in the world his name is Dr. Manny from Australia he's teaching in Amsterdam and so I went there to meet him and to connect with him and kind of get my feet wet in that area so that was why I chose Amsterdam um, also knew that in, in like transitioning in my career, I knew that I was going to have an opportunity to work with the Netherlands uh, national baseball and softball team in the hitting department. So I was going to be able to, to actually like get my feet wet and being a hitting coach with the Netherlands national team, which is not a, you know it's not Team USA. It's definitely like a small country. It's not great, but like that's what I needed, right? Coaching kind of maybe some lower level hitters and just kind of getting my getting my feet wet again, so to speak in that area. So I knew I was going to have that opportunity. All those things combined. I, I quit with the Astros in the 2018 season, went back to school. I did my class last year and then finished up my research in Seattle with driveline baseball for the past six months. And now I'm headed to work with the Yankees. Did you always know that you wanted to work in professional sports, like maybe baseball or softball specifically, but you mentioned being going on year seven now, and a couple of different capacities, obviously, but did you always want to be working in professional sports? No, no, I don't think so. In my undergrad at New Mexico, I was playing softball and then I was dating a baseball player on the New Mexico softball team. He was drafted to the Dodgers organization while we were still dating. We ended up dating for five years total. But during that time, I not only like started to learn a bit about baseball from like in the collegiate setting and also like pre-draft like he was like oh yeah I want to play professional baseball and I was like oh right that's cute like is that a real thing like okay <laughs> and he actually did and so I like kind of got to know about like the scouting process I was with him like when he was just like and also 
he was a prospect the first few years in the organization, and he climbed very quickly. So I saw a lot of different layers of the minor league system. I also traveled to the Dominican Republic with him, and I worked for his winter ball team. And I like I got this weird exposure to the minor league system that I, I just became so fascinated with how it all works. Players moving up and down, the Latin American side of things, everything up to the nutrition, training, and all the travel that goes on because there's so many games in baseball. I became really, really fascinated with minor league baseball and, and like the entire entity of professional baseball. That that's why I became fascinated with it. And I just and simultaneously, as he's going to the minor league, I was doing my my graduate work at LSU, kind of climbing the, the ranks in my own career. So it was just like timing wise, when I was getting done with my master's degree, he was still playing, and I was like wanting to get into professional baseball because I I was so fascinated with it. And that's actually how that came about. I never. I never aspired to work in professional sports, really, originally. I, I actually was, like, a, I will say, like, a student of, like, the business and the entire, like, onion, all the layers of the minor league system in professional baseball. That's why I, I actually was fascinated with doing that. And I think just, like, once I got in, I first few years, I probably would have still considered a college job, but now I'm just, like, I'm so, still, I'm so fascinated. There's so many layers to it. It's so difficult. you got players all over the country. You have the language barrier got people moving up and down all the time the travel is insane it's just have so it's so complex it's like this giant jigsaw puzzle and that's that's why I, I want to be a professional baseball really what fascinates me about it okay do you mind if we spend some time on the yankees yeah sure okay cool first question i'll just start easy this is obviously your first spring training you're on your way there now what do you think you're most excited for at the start of spring training? Just to learn. Honestly, like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to like say anything during spring training. I I think I'm just going to have a little notebook and like take notes. I just think it's like, for me, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to learn from my mentor, Dylan Lawson, who is just in my mind, he's just so far ahead. He's so far ahead. I think in a pseudo, he's like, he's, on the bleeding edge of what's going on and hitting. And so for me to have an opportunity to just like listen to what he's saying and how he's coaching and, and to understand the, how we're teaching with that, with the hitting department, I think that's what I'm most excited about is just to like get an opportunity to be a student there. Very cool. Now, when you were interviewing for the role and obviously you've gotten it, what do you think are some of the key attributes that put you as a front runner and then eventually as the person who was going to be in this role? Did it have to do with your biomechanics degree? I I imagine it had to do a little bit with that experience that you mentioned with the Netherlands national baseball and softball teams. But what were some of the reasons that you decided to go for this role and the Yankees saw you as the person for it? I'm going to just say, like, I'm just going to give all the credit to Dylan Lawson. He was a mentor of mine with the Houston Astros. And I would say mentor, like, we became friends. We kind of worked alongside each other. And then I started getting very curious about the hitting side of things. And, like, obviously I played softball, so it's not my first time around a ball field. You know, and, like, I've been coaching for 10 years. And now I just am coaching the body, doing something differently. Mm-hmm. And also, so Dylan, Dylan's background is actually from kinesiology, strength and conditioning background. And he's a hitting coach. He was a hitting coach in college first. And so he sees a lot of value in a coach, a hitting coach that knows the body and knows what that means when we say hinge or rotate and like what, what it looks like. 
but he sees a lot of value in that to begin with, but also his uh, background in, you want to talk about learner, like he's just the ultimate learning, reading machine. Um, but he actually stumbled upon eye tracking and like visual uh, perception to action in the sport and started doing some like research and also programs at the college level to do with eye tracking and swing decisions, these things. And this was like six or seven years ago, if I'm correct, that he was doing this. No one was talking about it. Still today, no one's talking about it. He's doing he's doing something that's like so different. So the fact that he's doing that so different, then I went to school, went back to school, and like because of him, because of his influence, I knew about this and I was going to dive into it. So I dove into it in my schooling and my research with the extra time I had. I was reading all these articles about it. And we obviously stayed in touch after I left the Astros. And he knew that I was doing this. He's like, nobody else is doing this, literally. So the fact that I have that kind of in my back pocket of that I was doing research and eye tracking and understanding it um, and simply just literally just knowing about it, reading about it, I think set me apart in his mind from other people. So both my kinesiology background, the eye tracking stuff, and then just like coaching. You know, there's this whole other side that people don't understand. It's not just the skills or the knowledge, I should say. It's, it's like the art of coaching, the skill of being able to coach. And we're talking about Dylan. Give you an idea of how how much emphasis he puts on the coaching aspect of it. He once literally mic'd himself up, put a microphone on himself and a little recorder in his back pocket, and and mic'd himself up during practice, and then listened to how he was communicating with the. He listened back to himself and how he was communicating with the players. He put, places a lot of value on. I won't say culture. I'm going to say the actual skill and talent of coaching, and it's not just about the. the knowledge that you had, it's about how you communicate it, it's about what you're saying, when you're saying it, how you're saying it, to which player, and he's really meticulous about that, another thing that I'm excited to learn more about, is just like, soak it up for him and learn how he coaches, because he places a lot of value on that, and he also knows that that's something that I place a lot of value on, so those are a lot of the specifics, but like, when it boils down to it, it's that probably I'm very, very well aligned with how Dylan Lawson goes about his business, whether that's in the actual like tactical things that he teaches or in the in the mindset of like that coaching is important and what we say, our limiting beliefs are going to reflect in what the players think about themselves. So all of these things that he believes and, and values are also things that I value and that's probably why I got the job. Very cool. Now, I saw an interview that you did sometime shortly after taking the job with the Yankees, and you mentioned to Yankees Yes Network, sideline reporter Meredith Marakovic, you mentioned that in the player development department, you're looking to be very aggressive. Can you be a little bit more specific about what you mean in terms of being aggressive with the player development? I hope I I don't I hope I didn't say that. I hope what I said was what I'm excited for is I see the Yankees being very aggressive in the moves that they're making in player development. I appreciate the way that the Yankees are going about it right now. And the Yankees are a very history franchise in the sense where they like they're known for buying players, right? Like right. they have this minor league system, they have two hundred and fifty minor league players, but the players go nowhere and at the end of the day just they just buy a bunch of free agents. I think that's changing for them. I think they're actually saying, wait a second, can we actually use this minor league system that we have to the fullest? <laughs> Are we using it to the fullest? And I think they're looking at it and saying, no, we're not. We're not maximizing this. We're not really taking a look at the players that we have and seeing if we can get more value out of them and develop them as, as players and as humans. And so 
I, I try to study organizations and see what they do, and I've just watched, since Dylan went to the Yankees, which was last year, my current boss with them, I've kind of paid attention and listened to what they're doing internally with the hires that they're making, with the different policies they're setting in place, with what they're asking the players. They're asking the players to do a lot more as far as learning and growing and doing things differently. And that's what I'm excited for. And so when I, when I, and I believe in that, obviously. So when I say, like, oh, being more aggressive with player development, it's staying away from a risk-averse attitude because that's very, very prevalent in any, in any business, by the way. Risk averse. We want to stay safe. We want to do. We want to do. What we've always done. And any business is prevalent, but I think it's even heightened in the sports world where you're in this public arena. And in, and in many businesses, you can start a business and go under and just fail and close your business, and people don't even know, right? right. But in the sports industry, everyone knows how you're doing because there's a win and a loss column. So it's just like it's heightened where we get in this risk averse attitude of we're going to do what we always did and we're going to we're going to you know we don't want to hurt the players and we got to be careful because we don't want to give the players too much information and they can't handle it and this and that and these limiting beliefs that we just force onto the players and I think what in my mind what aggressive player development looks like is we believe that these players are smart we choose to believe that they want information that they want to grow that they want to be better at their jobs but also they want to have a better mindset we choose to believe that about them and because we choose to believe that about them, we act that way. We give them information. We expect them to do difficult things. We expect them to learn difficult aspects of the game. And that's what aggressive player development is to me. In terms of collaboration, so you are for the minor league level, but obviously all of these players that are coming through want to get to the big league level. And I think the cool thing about getting the access to this information from the start means that they're probably going to want it as they continue to move up the ladder in the organization by the time they get to the major leagues. And and I know that the Yankees and all major league organizations have started to, with the information revolution, really catching up with all that and giving players that access to information without overloading them. But as far as collaboration goes, I mean, how much are you able to, at the minor league level, get to you know work and influence with the major leaguers like is that something that is going to be pretty prevalent I, I imagine maybe more so in spring training when you're all together but what do you think about over the course of a season um I probably like honestly won't have a lot of interaction with them it's never been really my goal um I've never said it. in fact it's my goal to be a major league coach never I don't think because I revel and I I revel and I enjoy so much working with the younger players um, I'm sure I'll work with some older players. I worked in AA with the Astros and was able to work with a lot of the older guys that are either just on the fringe of making it or some of the major league players that came through. And I've worked, I think, three big league spring training. So I've worked with a lot of major league players over my career. I imagine that might be a stop along my journey, but that's definitely not the end goal for me. So my end goal is to be as good of a coach as I can possibly be, which means I with people who really, really need development. It's not that the major league players don't need development because everyone thinks, oh, they've got it. They've got it on lockdown. That's not true at all. Oh, my gosh. There's so much room for development there. But what I will say is there's less room for error when you're coaching, and there's less, like, tinkering. There's less experiment. There's less, let's try something new. There's less of that because they got to win every day. So you can't be making all these massive adjustments and asking them to try new things in the middle of the season when they're trying to 
to win a series, you know, right. to win a, either a, literally in a, a season or like to win in the playoffs. You're not doing, it's not the same type of coaching. And I think for, especially for right now in my career, what I really need to develop in is like coaching hitters and coaching mass changes and getting, you know, like those things are important. And so I don't think I'll interact a lot with the major leaguers for the Yankees this year anyway in my current role. And actually I prefer I think that's really interesting and actually makes sense. So Yankees general manager Brian Cashman revealed in a recent interview that you actually turned down a major league opportunity with <laughs> with the Giants. And he also revealed that he was happy that you're still with the Yankees. <laughs> um, but it, it, is it really as simple as the fact, though, that you mentioned you want to be with the younger players? Like you want to be in that point in their career versus being at the major league level where maybe you even, – even if you are in that type of position, you can't have that much influence because the – the mantra to win is in the demand to win is a little bit higher than it is for the development process. That's really funny. And I don't think many people, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, but you're going to get a little secret here. I didn't turn that job interview down. They did. They didn't give it to me. Oh, wow. So, but that's really funny. It's like so funny that he said that in the interview because he's such a savage. I don't know if he just having my back or he wants to let everyone know like how special he thinks I am, but <laughs> or, or the press. Or the press got that wrong because that happened. Sure, like, just reported sure. it wrong. Um, but that's hilarious because I was like, "Oh, you're a savage! You turned down that major league job." I don't know what all to say about that, other than I will say I was adamant about needing to be in the dugout and being a full time coach of the major league staff. And I know just recently they hired um, a woman to their staff who won't be in the dugout. Right. Um, and I don't. I don't know. I just truthfully do not have an answer for knowing exactly why I was turned down for the job other than I think it has a lot to do with, you know, they saw value in me, but maybe not as a major league hitting coach, by the way, which is fair because I don't have experience in professional baseball as a hitting coach. So there's some things that I need to learn and I want to learn and I need to get my hand. I really just need to get my hands dirty. I, I'm confident in myself as a coach, but there's a lot, there's me a learning curve, just like anything else new. So I think if, if they were going to put me in the dugout as a full-time hitting coach on the major league staff, they preferred that I have more experience with doing that, which is fair. They saw value in the fact that I have been coaching for 10 years. I've known Dave Kapler for a while. I've known Farhan Zaidi for a while. And so I think they saw a lot of value in me, but they said, yeah, we're just not sure. We need to win. Giants need to win. You know, they haven't won in a while. So like, we need to win. We're just not sure that we can have somebody who's like, that and experience in a major league coaching role in the dugout. So that's what happened with that. However, I was adamant about being in the dugout because I feel like I really need to develop as a coach. And I think that being at the lower level is an excellent place to do that. If I ever tell anyone any advice getting into professional baseball, everyone wants to work with the older players. But that to me is like you're cutting your, your development short as a coach because mm-hmm. you're not going to be you're still going to learn, right? You're still going to learn things. You're still going to be coaching, but it's just not the same as being with younger players where you can make a lot more mistakes. There's a lot, there's nobody watching. You can be a little bit more free with your coaching than you can at the upper levels. And I always give the advice of going, go as low as you can in the minor league, go to the Dominican, go to the, be at the complex, go as low as you can. If you want to develop as a coach, that's where you're, that's where you'll go. Cause that's where you get you the most experience and working with people who really, really need mass changes in their development, whether that be physical or mental. Sure. And I think I do myself 
a fair amount of consulting and it ranges from a number of different things. I have a background in professional recruiting and HR prior to starting my own business where I work with student athletes. So I've done consulting on just traditional like corporate business interviews. I've done consulting on college recruitment and what those type of interviews can look like. And I think one of the biggest pieces of advice that I always give is that you should be interviewing the company or the college as much as they should be interviewing you. And, And what you just said about being adamant that you want it to be in the dugout and you have your reasons for it. And who knows if that was a reason that the Giants decided to pass on you, but that that was something that you wanted and you communicated that and made that known. And I, I just think that is so cool because a lot of people are hesitant to do it because they don't want to lose out on an opportunity. And I can see the reasoning behind that. But if imagine imagine if you didn't say something to the Giants so you get into this yeah. position and you're just dying to be in the dugout, right? Like you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be fulfilled. And I'd so, be miserable, honestly. Yeah, right. I'd be miserable if I, <laughs> if I had taken that job and been behind a computer. I'd be really sad. Right. And I would be, I because I'd be knowing that I that I'm not growing in the way that I need to grow right now in my career. Yes. Yes. And it, and it takes a, a self awareness to be able to have that, and that's something you need to grow and develop as you mature in life. But I just want that to be a lesson for people who are listening that if you feel strongly about something, whether that's the college that you want to play for or the job opportunity that you're looking for in life after sport, and there are certain aspects that you absolutely need to have, you need to ask those or you need to make those be known in the interview process. Because if you find out afterwards, then (laughs) you're going to be miserable. You're probably going to quit. It just does not work out. And I think that was a really cool lesson that you indirectly taught us with your story there. Absolutely. Very cool. All right. So I've taken a ton of your time here and I really can't, (laughs) I really can't express how excited I am to just keep up with what you're doing and just see the the growth that you have and the contributions that you make to the Yankees organization. And before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests. So the show is called Dynamic Leaders and you've showcased in all of the stories and the expertise and the guidance that you've shared with us today why you are a dynamic leader and on this show. But I like to give my guests an opportunity to shout out someone in their life that showcase great leadership qualities or really just was a strong influence to them. Do you have somebody that you'd like to give a quick shout out to? Yeah, I think God, well, okay. First I'm going to do three. Sorry. No, go ahead. Like mom and dad, (laughs) you know, mom and dad, but like just flat out, that's for sure. But then also Chris Frankel is a mentor of mine who has been a mentor for 14 years. He was a professor of mine at the University of Mexico he just taught me so much. Gosh, he allowed me to move into his house with his wife and kids. I lived with them, so I saw his habits. He was constantly feeding. He was constantly training. He would, even though he had three kids and a wife, right? He's training, and he's training his backyard, and he, he taught me how to train and how to coach. And he just constantly puts me in my place, man. He just, like, never <laughs> lets up on me. And I, even from the very get-go, when I was a student, and I was like, where should I do my, you know, my internship for my undergrad? Like you need to go to athletes' performance. Well, at the time, athletes' performance was literally the best. It's now Exos. It was this exclusive, like the best training performance facility in the country, where all the professional athletes were going to train. It was just like extremely difficult to get into, extremely hard to do. It was unpaid. It was moving across the country. None of my classmates were doing it. 
And he was the one who, like, I think originally planted the seed of, like, you're not going to be limited to this city of Albuquerque to do your internship down the road at the local, you know, sports place. Like, you're going big. You're going to do something different. You're going to learn from the best. You're going to be challenged. And he never stops, no matter what. Every time I go to him and ask him what I should do, he tells me to choose the hardest option. <laughs> and then he says it's still not good enough. So, you know, like, he just put so much, he's been so supportive. And I've learned a lot from his family and his wife and his children. But also just, like, he's also just had this extremely high demand for me in every area of how I conduct myself. And that's probably, he's definitely been one of my most influential mentors in my entire life. So that's the shout out. That's a good question. <laughs> awesome. That is a great way to end what's been a really amazing and it's been a treat to have you specifically for me. I've been a huge Yankee fan since I got the 1996 World Series video as a Christmas present for my parents. So <laughs> this is, yes, this is, this is a really special opportunity for me to have you on the show. And, and I think people are obviously going to learn a lot, but thank you again so much for taking time to share with us today and really seriously wish you all the best in the future. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it.